Amen. Thank you, Jake. Thank you, Mark. Ecclesiastes, I ask you to turn to chapter 5 and chapter 6 in Ecclesiastes. We're going to look at 5.18 to 6.12. We looked last week at the end of 5, but we're going to start back in 5.18 and we're going to go all the way through the end of chapter 6, chapter 6, verse 12. Title of this evening's sermon is The Danger of Wealth. So we're talking about money. And I want to begin with three words of caution, caveats for what we're about to talk about tonight. Uh, The first is that some of the stuff that we're going to read in this passage is not immediately obvious in understanding what the text means. What I mean is John 3.16, for God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. We like that. Straightforward, simple, direct, we get it. Ecclesiastes 5 and 6, not straightforward, not direct, not immediately obvious what some of these words and concepts mean. So we're going to wade through it tonight. Second caveat is that I just think it's interesting as I've read books over the last week, commentaries and uh, different books that people have written on Ecclesiastes, a lot of people skip this section. They don't even mention it. It's like you just flip from one section to the next and this isn't even there. And I think the reason is that what we talked about a couple of weeks back, two or three weeks back, before we talked about last week worship and prayer and before we had the Bordens here on a Wednesday night, but before that we talked about greed and envy, which are sins related to wealth and money. And so I think that because wealth and money was just talked about in Ecclesiastes, a lot of people skip over this section thinking, well, we just talked about money. They probably get the big idea. But it's in here twice, and it's in here differently in chapters 4 and 5 than it is here in uh, 5 and 6. And so we need to hear it, and we need to hear it as it's presented in both places Uh, So we're going to look at these these verses tonight. I've told you, in Ecclesiastes, as much as you might like to be done with this book by now, we're going to go through every verse. We're going to go through the whole thing. We're not going to leave anything out. So we're going to do that tonight. Last caveat is when we get down into the middle paragraph of really the three or four paragraphs we're looking at, there's an idea presented uh, that's hard to hear, especially for some of you who have dealt with Uh, infertility issues or miscarriage issues or loss of a child issues or have a a stillborn child type issues. There's things that he says that are a bit shocking to us. And so I'm not giving you really a trigger warning. I'm just saying to you that the author of Ecclesiastes is not trying to be insensitive. He's not trying to say that any of those things, and we'll get there in just a minute, are not painful or hurtful. He's just trying to help us understand an important truth about money and wealth, and so we'll work through those verses when we get there. Let me start with a quote from Sidney Greedness. He's written a very, very helpful book about Ecclesiastes, about preaching from Ecclesiastes. He says, in all times and places, people seem to be interested in accumulating wealth. People want to get rich. People want to get rich. The population of our town, historically, is directly tied to what? Price of oil. People are making money, more people tend to come here. People aren't making money, 
people tend to leave here. That tells you something, is that people are interested in making money. Uh, we could give other examples of this. We could talk about uh, historic gold rushes. And when I say gold rush, you probably think of the 49ers who went to California. But if you just look online, Google gold rush, there have been gold rushes literally all over the United States, all over the world. People have moved in mass migrations of uh, population in the hopes of finding gold. Why? It's because they want to get rich. They want money. In our society today, just across our society, not just the Permian Basin, but in the United States of America, we are a people obsessed with lottery jackpots. Lottery jackpots. Drive down the highway the next time you're on a road trip and just pay attention to all the billboards that the state of Texas or whatever state you're in is paying for on the side of the road to tell you what the current jackpot total is in the hopes that when you pull over for gas, you'll buy another ticket and jack that jackpot up a little bit higher. I was at a convenience store just a block away about six months ago, and I went in to buy a Diet Dr. Pepper. And at the time, one of the lottery jackpots was $500 million. And so I waited in a line very patiently as people were buying tickets and other things, and I got up with my Diet Dr. Pepper, and I put it down on the counter, and the man behind the counter looked at me and my Diet Dr. Pepper, and he said, how many tickets do you want? And I said, I'll just take the Diet Dr. Pepper. And he said, the jackpot is $500 million. How many tickets do you want? And I said, I'm just going to stick with the the Dr. Pepper Zero today. So we're a people obsessed with wealth, and that brings me to what I would submit to you as a big idea or a summary statement for the verses that we're about to look at. Wealth can be received as a gift from God, or wealth can be pursued as a little g God. Those are the two options before you. Wealth can be pursued as a little g-god, or positively, wealth can be received as a gift from big g-god. So, when we start talking about wealth and we frame this passage in that way, receive it as a gift from God or pursue it as a god, I think the natural tendency for most of us is to think about people that we know, maybe personally, or maybe that we know from television or media or the internet or YouTube or whatever. People who are openly, unreservedly, unapologetically trying to get as filthy rich as possible. We think of those people and we say to ourselves in the back of our minds, it's too bad they didn't come to Wednesday night church tonight. Because that's the kind of person that really needs to hear a message like this. And you know what? You're right. Somebody who is living their life unreservedly, openly, intentionally, unapologetically to get as much wealth as they could should listen to a sermon like this. Even better, they should just read Ecclesiastes 5 and 6. However, I just want to start our discussion tonight by being honest enough with each other to say that there are an awful lot of people, let's just say in the United States, who believe in 
God. You define that however you want to define it. They believe in a higher power, a deity, somebody up there, something up there, a God. They're not atheists. They might even be very religious and very spiritual. They might ever even be involved in church or religious services. These are people who believe in God. They pay lip service to Him. They tip their cap to Him regularly on Sunday mornings or maybe even on a midweek Wednesday night kind of service. But if you really examine their life and you really could drill down in their heart, you would find that they love money. Money controls them. And it may not be as openly crass as some Wall Street banker who just says, I don't care what you think. I don't care how I'm perceived. I just want to get as much for myself as possible. It may not be that open and direct. But really, the overarching story of their life is they are looking to money as a God. And it could be as simple as the person compulsively playing the lottery, thinking, if I could only win it, that would be the solution to all of my problems. So, let's just be honest enough to say that you don't have to be a crass, greedy, Wall Street banker out to make $8 trillion next week for this passage to have something to say to your life. Now, one last thing before we begin to read the passage. One of the things I've told you as we've studied Ecclesiastes is that it's important to remember that Ecclesiastes is not the first book in the Bible. It's not the last book in the Bible. We'll talk about that later. But it's not the first book in the Bible. And a lot of the ideas and a lot of the images and a lot of the vocabulary you find in Ecclesiastes has its basis or its foundation in other Old Testament books. And that's especially true for what we're about to read tonight. What we're about to read in Ecclesiastes 5 and 6 has its foundation in the book of Genesis. Specifically in the story, Genesis 1, 2, and 3 of the creation of Adam and Eve, and Adam and Eve being placed in the Garden of Eden. God created these people in His image and in His likeness. The Bible says that He placed them in a garden. He did not place them in a garden to lay in hammocks and look around and admire all the beauty. He placed them in the garden to work it and to keep it. You might say to toil which is a word we've talked about in Ecclesiastes. In that garden, there was lots of beauty, lots of food, lots of things to do, lots of work to be done. There was also a tree. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the Lord God said to the man and to the woman, you may eat of all the trees of the garden. They're all for you. But of this tree, I do not want you to eat. And in the day that you eat it, you will die. So as you read this story in Genesis 1 and 2, and the man and the woman are placed in the garden, you move to Genesis 3, and Adam and Eve decide that they know what is best for them, and they know better than God who created them and who created the garden in the first place. Adam and Eve decide that they are going to contend 
with the Creator. And even though he said, don't eat of this tree, they decide they're going to eat of the tree. And even when he comes and he asks them to give an account for what has happened and what they've done, they begin to argue with God. And they begin to blame God, and they begin to blame each other, and they begin to blame the serpent. All of these themes from Genesis 1, 2, and 3 are important for you to have in the back of your mind as we read what we're about to look at in Ecclesiastes 5 and 6. So let me just put a few words on the screen for your consideration. The word Adam or Adam in Hebrew is the word man. It's going to be an important word in this passage, especially when we get to the very end of chapter 6. The idea of work, or as we have termed it in Ecclesiastes, toil. All of the things that you do in your life. Good and evil, the tree of good and evil. We're about to see the author of Ecclesiastes say, this is good and this is evil. He's about to paint a contrast for us. The idea of life and the idea of death. All of these themes that you find in Genesis 1, 2, and 3 have application as the author of Ecclesiastes is talking to us about money. So, take your Bible, look at Ecclesiastes 5, Let's read the last paragraph of chapter 5, verses that we read last week. It says, Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot." Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil, this is the gift of God. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. Let's stop right there and let's make sense of that paragraph. First things first, the preacher begins by describing something good. Something good. And again, if your mind is steeped in Genesis 1, 2, and 3, you're thinking, okay, every day when God created something, he came to the end of that day, and what did he say? It was good. And it was good. And it was good. And he came to the end of his creative work when Adam and Eve had been created, when man had been created in God's image. Adam had been created in the image of God. And what did he say? He said, now it's very good. It's very good. And then we meet the tree. There's a tree. The knowledge of good and evil. And then God does say something interesting in chapter 2 as he's going back to describe the creation of human beings. And he says, it's not good that the man should be alone. It would be good if the man had a helper fit for him. So all these themes in Genesis 1 and 2, they come to fruition. And the author of Ecclesiastes says, here is something Good. So what is this good thing? According to the preacher, it's the providence of God that allows us to toil for wealth, to secure wealth, to consume wealth, to enjoy wealth, and to be content with wealth. That is a gift of God. It's a gift of His providence that God allows us to toil and to secure and to consume and to enjoy and to be content with with wealth. So one of the things I want to point out to you is that 
Over and over and over in this study of Ecclesiastes, I keep referring to Ecclesiastes 1, 2, and 3. And I tell you almost every week that the governing question and the governing answer for the book are found in chapter 1, verse 2, and 3. And first you find the answer, and then you find the question. And the question in verse 3 is, what does man gain for all of his toil under the sun? What do we gain for all of our toil under the sun? And the answer is previously stated in verse 2, vanity, vanity, all is vanity, 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 hebel, hebel, smoke, smoke, breath, breath, mist, mist, it's all here and then it's gone that quick. It's not saying life is meaningless, it's just saying that it is a vapor, it is a breath, it's mist. It's a smoke. And if you want to understand the book, you've got to understand all those terms in chapter 1, verse 2, and 3. Here's one more key term that you need to understand and you need to have on your radar when you read through Ecclesiastes. Are you ready? This is high-level, doctrinal, biblical insight. You need to pay attention and listen for the word God. Because there are long stretches in the book of Ecclesiastes where he's not mentioned. And then there's places in the book where he is mentioned. And if you don't pay attention and say, God's not mentioned in this section, but then he is mentioned in this section, what it's going to sound like to you as you read through the book is, the preacher is talking out of both sides of his mouth, and maybe you think preachers do that anyways, but that's certainly what you're going to think. You're going to say, wait a minute, over here he said this, and over here he said this. That's right. You're halfway there to understanding Because many times in Ecclesiastes, the difference between here and there is that God isn't here, but He is there. And in this section, God is present. And God gives meaning to all of our toil and the idea of wealth. So, Dwayne Garrett says this. This is my old Old Testament professor. To be able to live rightly and fully enjoy the things of this world is a gift of God's grace. Those who receive this gift are free from preoccupation with the pain of morality. It should say mortality, 5, 18 to 20. I read that quote and I read this section and I think about James chapter 1, James 1, 17. Every good and perfect gift is from the Father of lights, with whom, of whom there is no shadow or variation due to change. He's eternal, he's constant, he's unchanging. Every good gift in your life is from Him. We tend to think about God's grace, and we think about Jesus and sin and the cross, rightly so, 100% yes. But what Ecclesiastes is saying to us is that if you have a right view of wealth, and you're able to toil for it and secure it and enjoy it and be content with what God has given to you, that is a gift of God's grace, and it's a gift that you ought to be thankful for. Now, Two caveats here. Number one, the brevity of life, the hebel of life, the vanity of life does not nullify God's gifts and his blessings. This is one of the key things you have to get in your brain to make sense of Ecclesiastes. This idea of vanity, the the Hebrew word is hebel, it doesn't mean that it's all meaningless. It just means that it lasts this long. That long. Both of these things are true at the same time. All the stuff that you enjoy in life, it's a gift from God. 
if you're enjoying it apart from sin. You enjoy God's gifts and his blessings. That's a good thing. It's a wonderful thing. And it's true that your life is that long. Both are true. And we tend to think, well, if it's not going to last forever, then maybe it's not that good. And Ecclesiastes is saying to you, no, it's good. And you should enjoy it. You don't have long to enjoy it because you're not going to be here long. But as long as you are here, you absolutely should enjoy the gifts and the blessings of God. Second, the brevity of life should cause us to find joy in the present rather than to reminisce about the past. Joy in the present rather than to reminisce in the past. I told you there's some difficult verses in this section. Uh, Chapter 5, verse 20 is one of them. He's talked about eating and drinking and enjoyment. You say, okay, I understand that. Uh, We're toiling under the sun. We just have a few days. God gives us these days. This is our lot. Everyone that God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them, we should accept this. We should rejoice in our toil. All of this is the gift of God. You say, okay, I got it. Verse 20. He will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. What does it mean that you're not going to remember the days of your life because God keeps you occupied with joy in your heart? I think what the author of Ecclesiastes is saying is, When you are living in light of God blessing you and giving you gifts and you're enjoying those gifts and you're being obedient to God and you're fearing God, you are not going to be obsessed with the past because God will give you joy in the present. Let's try to think about this in real world terms. How many of you like Bruce Springsteen? It's a wonderful theologian from New Jersey, Bruce Springsteen. My kids groan when we get in the truck and I put on the Bruce Springsteen playlist. They just wail and gnash their teeth and they don't want anything to do with it. Uh, Thunder Road, that has absolutely nothing to do with this sermon. I was just thinking about Bruce Springsteen and I wanted to say to you, that is an example of a perfect rock and roll song for what it's worth. So if you get in the truck with me, pretty good odds we might listen to Thunder Road. This is what I really want to say about Bruce Springsteen. He has a unique gift as a songwriter and a musician, whether you like him or not. His gift is he writes songs, a lot of his songs, that sound very uplifting and positive and they get your head bobbing and you're jamming. But if you actually listen to the words, they're not happy songs. They're actually quite depressing. And an example of that is Born in the USA. And people blare this song at political rallies and, yes, USA. USA. But if you actually listen to the song, it's not really positive about things in the United States of America. There's this strange thing. We blare this song at political rallies. We get pumped up about the United States of America. Yes, we love the USA. And all the while we're playing this song that's like, hey, the USA's got some problems. There's some issues here. It sounds good to us. It sounds positive and uplifting and upbeat. It's like something you listen to on K-Love. Positive, encouraging. Bruce Springsteen. But you listen to the words and you say, no, 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 that's depressing. And another example of that is the song Glory Days. Glory Days. Man, it's upbeat and it moves and it's in the major chords and it sounds great. It's wonderful. But if you actually listen to it, you think, man, that sounds terrible. That sounds absolutely horrible. He's singing about the the quarterback of the football team 20, 30 years ago. 
who's just hanging around and he's never done anything with his life and all he wants to do is go down to the bar and tell everybody how great he was in high school. And it's kind of talking about him like, man, that's kind of sad. And then he sings about this lady who got married young and they had kids and then she got divorced and she's kind of cranky about having kids to take care of and she puts her kids to bed. All she wants to do is just whine about how terrible it is now and how great it was back in high school. And you think, oh, that's kind of depressing. And then in the third verse, Bruce says, I'm just going to go in the bar and get drunk. This is, you know, glory days. And this is the hook of the song. This is the, the chorus. Glory days. They'll pass you by. Glory days. In the wink of a young girl's eye. Glory days. If he had read the book of Ecclesiastes, he might have included the word hebel. Vanity. Smoke. It's here, and then it's gone. So we're talking about something good. Don't lose sight of that. It's good, the author of Ecclesiastes says. It's a blessing when we can toil for wealth, secure wealth, consume wealth, enjoy wealth, and be content with wealth. It's the gift of God. And the fact that our lives are short doesn't nullify the fact that God gives us things to enjoy. However, when God is giving us things to enjoy and we're living in the moment, looking to Him, fearing Him, trusting Him, acknowledging His gifts, and we have contentment, we're not reminiscing and living in the past, saying the past was so much better than the present. There's actually a sister verse we're going to look at next week in Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 10. Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Some of you are thinking, oh, I've asked that question. You've asked, why are the former days better than these days? And the Bible actually says, don't ask that question. Because that is not a wise question to ask. Sister verse would be chapter 5, verse 20. He will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. All right, let's read the next paragraph. There is an evil. An evil. If you like to make notes in your Bible, you could circle the word good in verse 18, chapter 5, verse 18. You could draw a line down to chapter 6, verse 1. Evil. There is an evil. We talked about the good. Here's the evil. There's an evil that I've seen under the sun, and it lies heavy on mankind. A man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor, so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires... Yet God does not give him power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. This is a vanity. It is a grievous evil. If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years, so that the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with life's good things, and he also has no burial... I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. For it comes in vanity and it goes in darkness, and in darkness its name is covered. Moreover, it has not seen the sun or known anything, yet it finds rest rather than he. Even though he should live a thousand years twice over, yet enjoy no good, do not all go 
to the one place. So let's try to sort through this tricky paragraph. The preacher moves on and he describes something evil. We've talked about the good, now we're talking about something evil. Here's the evil. Those who pursue wealth as little g God will never find contentment. You can receive wealth as a gift from God. That's what we talked about at the end of chapter 5. This is God's gift. This is our lot to accept what he's blessed us with, to be content with it, and to enjoy it. So you're going to receive wealth as a gift and be thankful for it and content with what you have, or you can chase it and pursue it and worship it like a little g-god. And if you do that, what the author's telling us is you will never find contentment and that this is an evil. So a few, few thoughts underneath this heading of not finding contentment. Some who obtain wealth will find that someone else enjoys their wealth. That's verse 1 and 2. Some people who turn wealth into their little g-god will get it and then find that someone else enjoys it. I don't think it's too hard for you to just dream up examples of what that might look like in our day and time. It could look like somebody who wins that $500 million lottery jackpot, and then all of a sudden they realize just how many cousins and friends they have. And then they realize, I don't know if you've ever paid attention to people win the lottery, but a lot of them feel like they have to end up hiring personal security and they can't go out in public because people pay attention to who's won the lottery and different things, and they're out to get certain people. And so a lot of these people win the lottery, and then they feel like, well, now I'm just a prisoner in my own house, and I don't want to be around all these hangers-on, and I feel like I can't even enjoy what I want. They didn't toil for it, but they want it. Somebody who obtains wealth and someone else enjoys it. Could that be our high-priced, highfalutin Wall Street executive who works and works and works at the expense of his family, but he works and he works and he works and he gets all this wealth, and then his kids enjoy that wealth, maybe a little too much, and they're spoiled brats, and then he resents the fact that his kids are spoiled brats, but... It's sort of his doing in the first place. You understand that not only happens in New York City on Wall Street, but it can also happen in the oil field, right? Maybe this would look like somebody who works and works and works and obtains wealth. And then, hebo, smoke, their life is over before they can enjoy it. I don't think I have to give you actual names. You know people in your own lives that, have had that very experience. And the author of Ecclesiastes knows that experience. The preacher understands it. And he says, this is a bad thing. It's an evil thing. Secondly, those who obtain wealth will discover that it does not and cannot bring joy. It does not and it cannot bring joy. So in this section that we just read, this is the difficult part of the passage that for some people is a sensitive subject. And so I'm just acknowledging that And I'm just asking you to hear what the author is saying and what he's not saying. This is a thought experiment. And you understand that he's making a comparison. He's not saying one thing is good, full stop. One thing is bad, full stop. He's saying this thing would be better than the other. He's making a comparison. And the thought experiment goes like this. Imagine you were blessed to have hundreds of kids. You may not think of that as a blessing, 
But in the ancient world, this would be a great blessing. You have hundreds of children. And he says in verse 3, imagine you lived many, many, many years. You lived a very long life. In verse 3, he says something about he doesn't have a burial. Some translations say he doesn't have a grave. It's sort of a difficult translation into English, but basically what he's saying is, imagine you lived so long you never died. Imagine we didn't have your funeral because you just kept on living. And he gives the example down in uh, verse 6. Imagine you lived a thousand years twice over. Oldest man in the Bible is Methuselah. 969 years, something like that. So we're going to go more than double Methuselah. Imagine you lived longer than anyone ever. The longest life possible. And imagine you had all this money and all this stuff. And you chased it as God and you still weren't satisfied. And you didn't even enjoy it. And you didn't have contentment. What the author of Ecclesiastes is saying is, it would be better to be a stillborn child who finds peace than to live forever and have lots of money and have no joy or contentment. One Jewish rabbi who lived depending on when you think this book was written, a couple hundred years after the preacher wrote this down, said it like this, what if you gained the whole world and you forfeited your soul? What if you literally got everything and you lived forever, but you didn't have joy or contentment and you gave up your soul? Jesus, Mark chapter 8, verse 36, what does it profit? That's the word in Ecclesiastes, isn't it? What does man gain for all of his toil under the sun? What would it profit a man to gain, same word, the whole world and forfeit his soul? What can a man give in return for his soul? So you understand that the author of Ecclesiastes isn't saying that if you've experienced a a stillbirth or a miscarriage or a loss of a child, not saying that's nothing light, like suck it up. Don't be sad about that. That's not the point. He's just saying there is something sadder than that. And our culture just doesn't believe this wisdom. This is a wisdom book in the Bible. Our our culture doesn't believe it. Our culture believes that this mathematical formula is true. Health plus wealth equals joy. That's the prevailing wisdom of the United States of America. If I'm healthy and I feel good and I have lots of stuff and lots of money, I'll be good. That's where I'll find joy. As an American, you cannot get away from the fact that that's the air that we breathe. And we're constantly tempted because of how our brains have been programmed by TV, by commercials, by Oprah, by Disney, by anybody. We've been programmed to think, if I had health, live forever, twice a thousand years, what if I didn't even have a funeral? And I could have a bunch of stuff get everything I always wanted, then I would be joyful. It's amazing how many people, we've talked about this, how many people who are not believers and presumably have never read Ecclesiastes stumble onto some of the wisdom of Ecclesiastes. It happens all the time. 
there is a musician named Art Alexicus, and he wrote a song, and in that song he said, I hate the people who love to tell you money's the root of all that kills. They've never been poor. They've never known the joy of a welfare Christmas. He's basically saying, I've had it with you Christians telling me to watch out for wealth. Now, if you're, if you're tuned in, you realize the Bible doesn't say that money is the root of all that kills. The Bible doesn't say that. Some Christians might say that. The Bible doesn't say that. The Bible says, Paul writing to Timothy, that the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. But we're often not very good at communicating that. And you know what? There's a lot of truth in that song. There's a lot of truth in that song. Contrast that view, though, that view that underlying it thinks, if I had a little more money at Christmas, it'd be a lot better. Contrast that with Jim Carrey. I don't know what to make of this quote. I think everyone should get rich and famous and do everything they ever dreamed of so they can see it's not the answer. Says a man who is rich and famous and hasn't given up his rich or his fame. But he's right. And it's sort of trite and pithy to just sort of say, you know, everyone should get rich and famous. He knows everyone's not going to get rich and famous. That's impossible. But he's just saying to you, look, I've got it. And he's not quite sure what the answer might be, but he knows it's not what he has. It's the Tom Brady syndrome we talked about with Super Bowl, was it number three? Number two, number three, where he gives a 60 Minutes interview and he says, I don't know, is this it? I don't know, maybe four would do it. Maybe five would do it. Six, I don't know, is that it? Rich and famous, it's not the answer. So you hear all this stuff about money. I don't think any of you think this, what I'm about to say. Just, I know you guys, most of you guys. Some people hear this stuff and they say, man, the money, money sounds dangerous, wealth sounds dangerous, you sound really down on money, wealth. Maybe we should all just quit our jobs. (laughs) Maybe you're into that, I don't know. Maybe we should quit our jobs. That was a more optimistic response than I thought. We'll quit our jobs and a check will come in the mailbox every month or direct deposit in the bank account every month and uh, we can maybe buy some land out in... I don't know, where'd you get it? Pleasant Farms in Odessa or Gardendale. We'll get a little commune going and we can just all be out there. We'll all pitch a tent and we'll just, you know, get off the grid, stick it to the man, get out of the system and we'll just, you know, back to nature, whatever. If money is the problem, maybe that's the solution. And if you start to think that, Ecclesiastes comes along like a punch in the nose and says, knock it off. Ecclesiastes chapter 6, verse 7. All the toil of man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. What advantage has the wise man over the fool? And what does the poor man have who knows how to conduct himself before the living? Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. This also is vanity and a striving after the wind. All right, let's make several observations here. Number one, I'm sorry to break it to you. Work is an unavoidable part of life. Unavoidable. 
you, you get a sense of the cycle that we're stuck in in Ecclesiastes 6, verse 7, where he says, all the toil of man is for his mouth. You work, you work, you work. Why? Because you got to eat. And your kids got to eat. And you need clothes, and your kid needs clothes. And there's light bill to pay, and we consume. We're working so we consume. But then when we go consume, we find out, oh, now I have to go back to work. All right, it's the same thing that you experience when you go on vacation. You work, you work, you work, you save up, you go on vacation, you come to the end of vacation, you say, oh my goodness, it's time to go back already. How did that happen so fast? And then you open your checkbook or your banking app or whatever, and you say, we blew the vacation budget. I guess we've got to go back to work. You work for your mouth, the author of Ecclesiastes says, but your mouth is never full. You're just stuck in this cycle of working. Guess what? That's how God created it to be. Genesis 1, 2, and 3. That's the foundation of what we're talking about tonight. Genesis 2, God created Adam and Eve to work and to keep the garden. Not to live on vacation in the garden like we imagined before sin. It was probably easy, paradise, umbrella, uh, hammock, little drink, little umbrella for my drink. It's wonderful. No, no, no. There was work. It wasn't work in a world that was cursed, but it was work. It's physical work. Work and keep the garden. It's not going to keep itself. Work it. Adam, not only are you going to have to do some physical work, but you're going to have to do some mental work. I want you to look at these animals, think about them, and name them. You're going to have to be creative. Creative work. Intellectual work. All kinds of work going on. That's how God created life to happen. Now, I don't want to be too political, but I think you'll understand my point. Well, we're just thinking about how God has designed the world to function. Work is an unavoidable part of life. When governments disincentivize work for its people, they're going against how God has designed creation to work. Going against the grain of creation. People are actually designed to work. Now, I'm not saying if you're retired, you're outside of God's creation design. I'm not saying if you're a homemaker and you worked in the home, you're outside of God's creation design. But human beings were created for toil, not for laying on the couch. Human beings were created to work and to toil and to labor and to be productive. There's consequences for the hypothetical society that forgets that. Next, work should be coupled with contentment so that wealth doesn't become our God. And this is Ecclesiastes 6.9. This is a Hebrew idiom. It's difficult to translate idioms from one language to another. So let me tell you what the, the English idiom would be. You maybe heard your grandma say something like this. Better is one in the hand than two in the... What does that mean? If you got one, why don't you just be happy with one? Because you see two over there, but you don't have them. You have the one. You have it. That's better than two that you don't have. Be happy with the one. So what the Hebrew idiom is, Ecclesiastes 6, 9, better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering appetite. Better is what you have and you can lay your eyes on it. It's right there than your wandering appetite where you can't really see it, but you're just dreaming about it. I was talking with my wife's granddad just this last week. He was talking about 
the ancient version of Amazon, the Sears and Robux catalog. And he said, we learned in our family, in our marriage early on, that we could get in trouble with that catalog. We could get in big trouble because they would sell us anything we wanted. What is he talking about? He's talking about better is the sight of the eyes, better is one in the hand, than the wandering of the appetite, the browsing the catalog, the scrolling through Amazon, the walking through academy, whatever it is. Be content so that wealth doesn't become your God. All right, last section. Ecclesiastes 6, 10 to 12. Whatever has come to be has already been named. And it's known what a man is and that he's not able to dispute with one stronger than he. The more words, the more vanity. What is the advantage to man? For who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life which he passes like a shadow. You understand how that verse sounds different to us in English if you don't say vain. If you read it as Hebel, it says, verse 12, who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his brief, short life, which he passes like a shadow, for who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? So notice the preacher uses the word man, Adam, Four times in this final section. That top section, he kept talking about God. In this section, he keeps talking about man, Adam. When he uses that word on repeat, he's drawing your attention back to Genesis 1, 2, and 3. Have you seen how many times he's drawn us back? Drawn us back with good and evil. Here's something good, here's something evil. He's talked about toil and he's talked about work. Now he's talking about man, Adam. All these themes trace us back to Genesis 1, 2, and 3. So, as he's talking about man, he's really talking about God. And he's contrasting who God is with who we are. So, I just want you to note a few things. The preacher reminds us of several truths about God, and he does it by talking about us. Number one, God determines the future, not man. Ecclesiastes 6.10, whatever has come to be has already been named. God's not surprised by what happens today or tomorrow or the next day. He knows, Psalm 139, He knows the words on our tongue before we even say them. He knows it all. He's written our days. What has come to be is already been named, he says. God determines the future, not man. You understand that in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve thought that they could become like God, like Him. The sad irony is that they were like Him. They were literally created in His image and His likeness. But they wanted more than what God had given to them, and they grasped for that, to take that for themselves, but there's some things that the creature can never take from the Creator, and this is one of them. God determines the future, not man. Secondly, God is omnipotent, not man. Verse 10b. 
It's known what man is, and he's not able to dispute with one stronger than he. You know, in the Garden of Eden, there's no question about who's in charge once God shows up. And Adam and Eve try to dispute with God, but there is really no disputing with God. They don't have a smart answer that's going to back God to any sort of corner. God is omnipotent, not man. Thirdly, God is not persuaded by the words of man. This is verse 11. The more words, the more vanity. What's the advantage to man? We talked about this last week, chapter 5, verse 1 to 7. When you go to the house of God to worship, be slow to speak. Don't make a bunch of promises that you don't intend to keep or you don't know if you can keep. Be slow to speak, quick to listen. The more words, the more vanity. Number four, God knows what is best for man. And again, we see this by way of contrast. Verse 12, who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life. English, vain life, that's the ESV. But the Hebrew would be his brief life, his hebel life, his breath of a life, his vapor of a life, his mist of a life, his sigh of a life. You understand the point that he's trying to make? In the, the grand scope of human history, you're here for that long. And you think you know what's best? Maybe, just maybe, the one who was there in the beginning and will be there in the end knows what's best. And maybe, just maybe, because you live in the United States of America in the 21st century, that you're not smarter than everyone who's come before you. Or you're not smarter than people who live on the other side of the world. Who knows what's best for man? Well, it's not us, if we're honest. You understand, Adam and Eve thought that they knew what was best. God said, don't eat of it. And they looked at each other and they counseled in their minds and their heart. And they said, well, we think we have a better plan. It was not a better plan. Number five, God is eternal, not man. God is eternal, not man. We have brief lives and they pass like a shadow. Who can tell us what will come after us under the sun? The only one who can do that is God. I can't do it for you. You can't do it for me. Our lives are hebel. God is eternal. So let's try to sum it all up. We started off tonight saying Ecclesiastes is not the first book in the Bible. And if you want to make sense of this passage, you've got to listen to Genesis 1, 2, and 3. Now let me say that Ecclesiastes is not the last book in the Bible. If you really want to understand this in the full biblical context, you have to go forward to the New Testament and you have to factor in Jesus somehow, who he was, what he did, what he taught. And so we'll end with this last truth. Jesus lived and died that his people might have a right view of God and wealth. He lived and he died that his people might have a right view of God and wealth. I want to mention four of these verses here quickly, and we're not going to turn to them. I'll let you look at them and read them on your own. Uh, the reference here to Matthew 12, 24 is a typo. You can scratch it off. That was my mistake that it made the final notes here. Four verses. I just want to point out each of them. Uh, Matthew 6, 24. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount said, uh, you can only have one master. Not two. Only one. And specifically, Jesus made the point in the Sermon on the Mount, it will be God or money. That's what we're talking about tonight. You can receive wealth as a gift from God, use it rightly, be grateful for it, enjoy it, 
or you can treat it as your God and chase it like your little g God, but you can't do both of those. Everyone will do one or the other. Jesus made that clear. Mark 10, the rich young ruler before Jesus, and he walks away sad because Jesus tells him to sell everything that he has and he had great wealth. And Jesus says how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom. It's going to be very hard for the rich to enter the kingdom. And the disciples who think wealth is an automatic sign of God's blessing and favor say if the rich aren't going to get in, who's going to get in? And Jesus says, you know, it's kind of like a camel going through the eye of a needle. It's not going to happen. It's impossible with man. Salvation is impossible with man, but it is possible with God. Possible with God. Mark chapter 8, Jesus talking to people who have passed through that proverbial eye of the needle. What does it look like to be a follower of Jesus, a disciple of Jesus? Well, one of the things it looks like is denying yourself daily and taking up your cross and following Jesus. Not living to use wealth for your own pleasure daily, but denying yourself daily. It's a very un-American value. There's some things in the Bible that you say this is a a Judeo-Christian value that's reflected in our culture. There are some things in the Bible that you say we have completely lost as a culture, or maybe we never had them. This idea of denying yourself daily and taking up your cross, dying to yourself to follow Jesus. That's part of what it means to be a believer, according to Jesus himself. Luke 12. Luke 12. You know, we talk about money, and we talk about Ecclesiastes, and we all think, I have more time. I have more time. I have time to sort this out in my life. I'll do this later. I'm busy now. I have a crisis going on. I have more time. I have more time. Jesus talks about a man in Luke 12 who in his great abundance and in wealth decided to spend it on himself. Not deny himself, but spend it on himself. He built these bigger barns. And then he found security in what he had stored up in these barns. That tells you that he's not just receiving it as a gift from God, but he's actually chasing it as his God because he's finding his security and his comfort and his safety in what he's stored up. And in the parable of this rich fool, his life is required that night. He didn't think that that was coming. He didn't have a terminal illness. He didn't know that his days